Well, good morning. It's strange to be with you this morning. Uh, it's a strange uh, time that you and I are living through. Uh, I have, I'm, I'm kind of in favor of hand sanitizer all the time. Uh, but even, even I'm getting tired of hearing about it. Uh, and we're a long way from being done hearing about it. Uh, I, I want to ask you to do something for me, uh, and that is that I, I want you, if you're not already, uh, I want you to be in prayer for our, our leadership at church, for our leaders in our, our community, for our leaders in our state and in our country and in our world, because this is a really complex, difficult set of issues that we're facing right now. And I'm afraid that we live in a culture uh, that is currently so politically toxic that if you keep saying that, that nothing's happening, you earn conservative street cred. And if you say this isn't just like the flu, people think that you're a liberal snowflake. And the truth, obviously, is more complicated than either of those realities. Um, which is why you're seeing so many types of leaders, whether it's churches or schools or uh, local government or state government. It's why uh, the president just declared this to be a national emergency. There's a lot going on here. Uh, and so I, I just want you to know, especially on behalf of our elders here at church, we clearly believe in the power of gathered community. There are many churches this morning uh, for a number of reasons that have decided not to meet. Uh, we tried to figure out a way, hand sanitizer and special communion elements and all, uh, to still meet. But there could be uh, circumstances that change in the very next week that make that impossible next Sunday. And I want you to know that if that happens, it's not because... Uh, your eldership is full of political progressives. I can assure you that is not the case. Uh, we are, are trying our hardest to be responsible good neighbors. And while we are not scared, I want to be clear about this. While we are not scared, we don't want to scare our most vulnerable neighbors. And if you have... have, have watched the news at all this week, uh, if you've been on social media at all this week, I'm guessing you've come across the phrase flattening the curve. If you haven't, Google it right now. It's okay. I know you're doing it anyway. <laughs> and this has to do with, I'm not nervous about getting coronavirus. I'm really, based on what I'm looking at, I'm not nervous about uh, Riley or Reese getting coronavirus. I'm worried that we could have it and not have many symptoms and then go visit somebody who's 65 or older or somebody who's immunosuppressed and we don't realize that we're exposing them. And flattening the curve means that those of us who don't have to proactively make some decisions that are admittedly Inconvenient, frustrating, uh, weird for the sake of other people so that we can slow down. Not th th There's no way to really stop the full number of people that are probably going to get this disease, but we can slow it down. Now, I've talked to some local doctors here about this as recently as this morning. And the issue here is while we may not be able to stop the full number of people who, who are exposed and end up getting this virus, 
We can, we can control the pace of that so that our medical workers and the resources they have can keep up. If they get swarmed the way Walmart got swarmed with toilet paper, people are going to die, right? If there's a line 15 deep for a respirator, we're going to have to start making impossible choices. So I, I just want to reiterate to you, I'm not an elder at this church, but I live I share life with the elders in this church. I know the conversations that, that they're having. I know the conversations we're having as leadership, and I just want to be clear with you. Nothing we're going to do in our decision-making is going to be driven by fear or panic. It's going to be driven by our love for our neighbors. And we need you to pray for us to have wisdom. And we need you to know that it is impossible in a situation like this to make a decision that will make everybody in our church family happy. So just know we're doing our best. It's imperfect, but we're doing our best. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this time that we have as your people to gather around your table, hand sanitizer and all. And we pray that as we open our hearts to your word here in a moment, that you would speak peace and trust and hope, that you would help us have a sense of your, your nearness and your healing presence. We thank you for your son, for the ways that he shows us what it means to love God with everything we have and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And God, we just pray that you would help us as a church community know how to embody the love and the presence of your son, whose life was marked by, whose, whose legacy is marked by self-giving love. Please be with us this morning as we think about him and as we draw near to him. It's in his name we pray, amen. amen. So we're gonna read two parables this morning as we prepare to take communion. And uh, you, you may have heard them before, or this may be the first time that you've, you've ever heard them, and whether they're really familiar to you or not, uh, it's, it's vital for us uh, with Scripture to find ways to be looking for something new, uh, to be hearing something that maybe we've never heard before. And it's all the more difficult if we feel like we've heard something a thousand times. So I just urge you, if you're in that camp this morning as, as you open up to Luke chapter 15, uh, please say a quick prayer right before I read these words in your heart that God would help you hear something, see something that maybe you've never heard or seen before. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. 
In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Okay, so we got two stories, right? They're very similar in structure. Uh, They seem to be covering the same amount of ground. What I want you to ask yourself as you think about these two stories is, who are you in the story? Who are you? You know, I I remember the first time I I ever heard somebody read out loud Jesus' parable about this this lost sheep and the shepherd that leaves the 99 and goes to find this this lost sheep and and especially that image, right, of the, the shepherd taking that lost sheep once he finds it and putting it on his shoulders and bringing it home and there's this community celebration that happens when the, the lost sheep is found. And for years, every time I heard that story, I, I always pictured myself as that little lost lamb. Right? And, and I didn't ever think through, well, how would I manage to lose myself? Right? How, how would I manage to, to lose my way? I just always focused on the fact that, that Jesus or God would, would risk it all. Right would risk the 99, and, and in terms of the, the story, the shepherd's risking his life to go find this little lost lamb, and, and I loved especially the moment that, that Jesus got this lamb and put it up on his shoulders. And my, my parents, this was, you know, I'm, I'm getting older now, uh, I'm almost 42, so some of you may not get this reference at all, but there was this Christian artist, he actually... Uh, died in a, a plane accident, so he wasn't around forever, but his name was Keith Green. I don't know if how many of you may have heard of Keith Green. Uh, My Eyes Are Dry is a song that we sing uh, that, that he and his wife Melody wrote. But he had this album, and this was back when you had records, and my dad had a ton of records. I guess some of the younger kids in here now have ironic record collections, but back then it was just that was the best technology you had, right? And so the album art on those things, I would spend hours looking at my dad's album art because um, they were sometimes really amazing paintings or pictures. Well, this one of Keith Green, he was holding a lamb on his shoulders. And I always thought of that moment and what it must have been like for this little lamb and Jesus to just have this, this affectionate embrace and I used to think about what was it like for that lamb when the shepherd, when Jesus is, is taking it back home, right? What, what kind of words did the shepherd speak to the, the little lamb on the way back home? Um, and I would think about, this is great. And then at some point, I remember my dad saying to me, uh, hey, have you, have you ever looked at the context, son? We were talking about teaching through Luke, and my dad's a preacher. And I said, what do you mean, look at the context? He said, well, look at the way Jesus sets up the story. And I said, what do you, okay, fine. So I opened it back up, and I started reading it. And I didn't see what he meant, and I started reading it again. And he said, just, just look at the first phrase. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep. You're not the sheep, son. You're supposed to be the shepherd. Grow up. Now, here's the amazing thing about parables in Scripture, right? They can work on multiple levels at the same time. And it's obvious that when Jesus is telling this parable in front of the tax collectors and sinners who want to be around him, but he's responding to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who don't like all the tax collectors and the sinners being around him, they're all hearing the parable together. 
right? It's obvious that if you belong to the tax collectors and the sinners camp, you are the lost sheep. That's who you are. But Jesus is actually telling the story to the Pharisees and the the teachers of the law. They aren't the sheep in the story. They're supposed to be shepherds. And Jesus is basically saying, um, this is how they need to view these other people. Not as annoyances, not as folks who, who are being drawn to Jesus and they're not good enough. Jesus wants them to understand how God loves everyone and what God would risk for one lost soul. And he's also saying to them, shouldn't you care about the things God cares about? Shouldn't you love the things God loves? And more specifically, shouldn't you love who God loves? You're the shepherd. Now, here's another thing about the shepherd. Uh, He makes a really interesting decision here. He leaves 99 sheep to go get one. Now, I'm not great at economics and math. But wouldn't you think you'd write the one off and hold on to the 99 that you have? I mean, if all you're worried about is how many sheep that you, you can hold on to, you'd say, okay, I've still got 99% of my sheep. I'm, I'm good. Here's the other thing I never noticed before. Where does the shepherd leave the 99? It's not safe in a pen somewhere. Where does the shepherd leave them? In the wilderness. You know the definition of a wilderness You're in the wilderness when there's something big and strong enough to eat you. That's the wilderness of Scripture. It's probably a wilderness somewhere in West Texas. But that, when you read wilderness or open country in the Bible, it means there's something big enough and scary enough to eat you. That's the wilderness. There's plenty of that if you're a sheep. The shepherd leaves 99 loose in the wilderness to go get the one. Why would a shepherd do that? Because it's not about the economics. It's about the love the shepherd has for this one sheep. Now, you could push this too far and get into some weird places theologically. You could say, were the other 99 not worth as much? Are they annoying? Are we going to start picking 99 people at church who we would put into that category and say, well, I'd leave them behind to go get this person? No. No, we're pushing all that too far. The story's about Jesus' God's love for every single soul. And that we should share in that same love. Same way when it goes to the story of the woman with these ten coins. Now you can, you can read all kinds of, of commentaries about what the ten coins were. And whether they were part of a wedding gift or part of a wedding veil. Um, which was common at the time. Um, whether it's just an economic thing again. Because we're told that each one of the coins is worth a day's wage. Which if you're a peasant and you're having to barely scrape by. Then holding on to ten days worth of money was a big deal. And losing one would have been detrimental. And so it makes sense that she loses it. She starts to turn her whole house upside down trying to find it. And when she finds it. She, just like the shepherd, right, she throws a party because the joy that she encounters in finding the lost coin is too much for her to experience on her own. She wants to share that joy with her community. Now, here's part of this that's important again. The Pharisees and the tax, uh, sorry, I always do this. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, right, they, they're the ones looking for the lost coin, they're not the lost coin. That's the, the sinners and the tax collectors. That's, that's who they are. Right? And Jesus' ministry is finding a way 
to go out to those people, to search for them, to embrace them and bring them home to God. The Pharisees would rather those people find their own way back to God and jump through whatever hoops they've got to jump through religiously to be acceptable enough to God and to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And Jesus says that's not how this works. Now, here's the thing. If you're just reading the story of the shepherd, you might be able to say, well, you know, as much as the shepherd loves the sheep, the sheep shouldn't have wandered off. You can get into this whole debate about, you know, how do people wander off and if it's their fault and all that kind of stuff. You don't blame coins for wandering off. Right? If, you, if, if a coin goes missing, you know who lost it. You lost it. Okay, now again, you can push this too far and say, well, does God lose people? No. The point is that if we get caught up in trying to blame people who haven't yet found their way back to God for not knowing better, that's an exercise in frustration. Jesus says again, if you see this in the character and the heart of God, it's who you're supposed to be. And I don't want us to miss what happens in both of these parables, right? There's this searching, and then there's this finding, and then there's this celebrating. The shepherd throws a party. This woman, she throws a party because she wants to not only know herself, that the coin is found, the shepherd doesn't just want to have an experience on his own that the sheep's been found, they want other people to gather together to celebrate to rejoice, to talk together about the value that's been recovered. Not, not value in economic sense, but the value in just how much the sheep matters, just how much the coin matters. Sentimentally, relationally, how much they matter. If that's who our God is, it's who you and I are supposed to be. That's what Jesus is trying to say to the Pharisees and, and the teachers of the law. You don't just read about a God who searches and finds and celebrates. We're supposed to be people who search and find and celebrate other people. That's who we are. It's not just something we occasionally do. We're searchers and we're finders and we're celebrators. That's who we are. It's our central identity. And I think too often I get caught up in saying, well, if I'm going to be a shepherd, I'd rather, instead of leaving the 99 in the open field, I'm going to spend a lot of time and make a really great pin they never want to leave. Right? And I'm going to send somebody else maybe to go, you know, somebody who's good at finding lost sheep, and I'll let them do that. And I'll wait with the 99 in the pin. Um, or... Or, look, I've got nine coins left, and it's a bummer that I lost the one, but I got enough, and I'll just try to make do. And that, that's, not, that's not the kind of, of passion that God wants for us to have for, for people in our world who one way or another, for one reason or another, have managed to lose themselves, have managed to lose their way. We're supposed to, we don't wait on them, we go to them. We seek them out. And it may take patience after going to them for them to realize that they've been found. 
right? That they, that they have a sense that they're missing something, that they desperately need, that they need to find a way back home. And again, instead of us hoping they just manage to stumble on that, that pathway themselves, we want to walk with them back home. And when they come home, we, we don't want to relitigate every mistake they've ever made or, or try to say, are, are you willing to do this and this and this? We, we just need to find a way to help them understand that we are overcome with God's joy that they're back home again. We have to help people experience that for them to know that that's exactly what is going on in heaven Right, that, that so often we describe God in abstract ways or in distant ways. If we want people to really experience that, that, that amazing journey of coming back home, that that's what it feels like to be saved, then as a community we have to help people experience that in flesh and blood through us. It's who we're supposed to be. And this, this table that we come to every week, it's a, it's a party. I mean, we're really, we're somber at throwing parties, I know. But it's a party, right? It's, it's supposed to be a moment where we realize that, that what it means to be a Christian is that we have accepted an invitation to a party that God doesn't only throw for us, but we throw for one another because of God. Right, Because it's who God's asked us to be. And when we accept God's invitation to that party, we also are saying, we know we don't get to edit the invite list. It is not our invitation to the table. It is not our invitation to the party. It is God's invitation that we extend. And so we find ways to help people understand just how welcome they are. In this place, not because of, of what we've figured out on our own, not because of what they've managed to do on their own, but simply because when you are in church as a community, all of us understand that we are at equal footing at the foot of the cross. That all of us are in desperate need of the grace that makes this acceptance and this embrace possible. And we get to experience it not just every week, but every day in how we treat one another and how we receive one another and how we help, we help everybody understand that we believe because of God, because of what Jesus has done, because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, that no matter where you come from, you belong here. You belong here. So we're going we're gonna to pray in just a moment uh, over the bread and then over the the fruit of the vine, but we're, we're going to give you a moment here to get up. I know it's going to feel a little different than normal. Get up and get, uh, there's, some, um, there's some tables in the back that have these. There's tables up here. If you'll go ahead, uh, get enough for you and your family, uh, and then we'll take communion together in just a moment. Okay? One, two, three, break. Yeah, I think this, this week, uh, the last couple of weeks, but especially this week in our nation, have reminded us of of the brokenness of our world in a number of ways. And what Jesus reminds us is if we're, if we're going to go search and if we're going to find and if we're going to celebrate, we're going to have to go into the brokenness of the world and we're going to have to love people enough to let that brokenness break us. And it's okay if it breaks us because we're resurrection people and we will rise. 
from that brokenness every time. Um, and so as we take this bread, I want you to think of somebody in your life who has a broken relationship with God, someone you care about. Uh, and as I pray in a moment, I want you to see their face and I want you to ask for God to help you to be someone in their life who helps them find their way back home, okay? Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for the example, the life, the, the death, the resurrection of your son. We thank you for the fact that it helps us face the brokenness of our world and, and the way that, that so many of the people we care about may be struggling with the broken relationship with you, God. And God, we lift those, those people up to you, those, those faces, those names. God, and I ask you to empower each one of us to find a way to make that call, to send that text, to write that note. God, help us find a way to open the door to be one more reason, one more voice that helps call them back to you that helps to call them back home. It's in your son's name we pray, amen. As we stay in this place, uh, I want us to think about the fact that this, the shepherd is, is able to, to not only find the sheep, but in order to do that, he's, he's, gotta, he's gotta sacrifice everything. Risk his life. Right, risk his, his lifeblood for that sheep. Um, and, and how many people in your life would you be willing to do that for? Right? Jesus is willing to do that for every single one of us. But we, we have to find ways for our lives to be marked by that same self-giving love for other people. And so often, I'll just be honest with you, I won't reach out to someone to help bring them back home because it might be awkward. How can awkwardness be the reason that I don't find a way to connect with somebody and help connect them back to the one who loves them and, and is calling them home? That we've got to push past whatever obstacles it is in our own hearts and lives that we think make it too hard, too difficult. Jesus gave everything to find us. And he's calling us to sacrifice everything to find other people. And we've got to ask ourselves every week when we, when we take a sip of what we believe to be Jesus' lifeblood, we've got to ask, do we want that same blood to be coursing through our lives? Do we want his life to become our way of life? Or do we only want to benefit from it? Do we only want to be blessed by it? Or do we want to give what we can to be the same kind of blessing in someone else's life? We're going to take this together in a moment. And as we do, I just, I hope that you're honest with whatever it is. What are the reasons you come up with? What are the reasons I come up with? That if I'm honest, there are more excuses than anything else of why I'm not helping somebody. Somebody I know, somebody in my sphere of influence, helping them discover the God who loves them so much, he sent his one and only son to die for them. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for everything that Jesus makes possible for us. And we, we just want to find ways, God. It doesn't matter how long we, we've been following you or, or if today's the first moment we've ever thought about it. God, we just, we've got to find new ways to give more of ourselves to what it is you're doing.
to, to, to go where it is you're calling us to go. And so I, I just pray, God, please be with us. Give us the strength and the courage to push past whatever reasons we've come up with for why we don't. Do what it takes, whatever it takes, to help connect people in our lives to you, to help people in our lives draw closer to you. God, give us the ability and the strength to be those people, to be your people. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So the the second half of Luke 15 is perhaps the most famous parable Jesus ever tells. It's the parable of the prodigal father. I didn't say that on accident. Prodigal means lavish or wasteful, right? That's why we tend to call it the parable of the prodigal son, because one of them is wasteful. But the love of the father is lavish, And if we're really going to call it something, I think we probably should call it the parable of the two lost sons. Because one of them loses his way leaving home. The other manages to get lost and he never leaves home. And they both have to figure out whether or not their relationship with the father is something that they, they want to give their lives to. And one of the things that, again, it's taken me years of listening to and reading the story of, of these two lost sons to figure out that part of what has to be really irritating the older brother, right, who stays at home and he works and he does all the things he's supposed to do. When the, when the younger brother comes back and the father runs to, to embrace him and gives him a, a ring and a robe and, and throws him a party and and this older brother comes in from the field, he's been working hard, and he hears the noise of this party, and he asks what's happened, and the servant says, well, your younger brother's come back. And he refuses to go into the party. This is the moment you realize he's lost. He won't go into the party with his father and his brother. I think one of the reasons he doesn't want to go in is his younger brother has already spent his half of the inheritance. So guess who's paying for the party? Guess who's paying for the party? The older brother's having to pay for the party. And it makes him angry. And I understand why it makes him angry. And yet the father basically says something along the lines of, you're paying for the party, you might as well attend. Right? Come in. Come back to me. Come back to your brother. Come in. You're paying for the party, you might as well attend. I think sometimes when we come to this place in our our celebration on Sunday mornings where we're talking about giving financially to the work of the church and really to this upside-down kingdom that Jesus is, is constantly calling more and more people into. I think there's a part of us that thinks, you know, I work really hard and, and I, I do what I can and I, I save and I invest and we get to this part in our service and I want to feel more excited about it than sometimes I do because it's not always easy to give what we've worked hard to produce. It's, it's difficult. And God knows that about us. God knows that about every single one of us. And I think it's actually why he keeps asking us to give. Because there's a freedom to be found in the things we can leave behind. Right? There's a freedom to be found. But I want to come back to this idea that the reality is, look, God is asking us to help pay for the party. We might as well attend. 
right? We might as well be a part of it and figure out how are we going to experience the good news of of what God is doing through our financial generosity. And and I want to be clear about this. Um, It's going to be a challenge over the course of the next not just a couple of months, but when you look at what's going on in our world, something that's also happening at the same time as this coronavirus stuff is what's going on in our, our stock market, right? What's going on everywhere financially? And it's easy for us to see stuff like that going on and to start, for lack of a better, more precise term, freaking out. And when we freak out, we tend to hold more tightly. But what I want to encourage you this morning and in the coming weeks and months, we've got to find ways to help people understand that God cares about them. And one of the resources that God uses through us to help people know that he's trying to take care of them is our money. It's our finances. It is not the only way, but it is an important way. And I promise you, we're going to have an opportunity as a church in the coming weeks and months to help our neighbors in ways we've never helped them before. And I want to encourage you, all of our local missions budget comes out of our weekly giving. I want to encourage you, we've got to find ways to dig deep when it matters most, and it matters most when it costs us the most, when it's, when it's, when it's a freakout time. And we want to hold on. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, it's, if we don't know how long schools are going to be closed, there's going to be kids that need lunches. Um, if, if we don't know how, how long other institutions are going to be closed, there's going to be all kinds of other needs that crop up. And we're going to need financial resources to be able to do it. And I don't want our church sitting on the sidelines because we're scared. So dig deep. Not just this morning, but as we go forward. Now, I'm going to say a prayer in a moment. After I say the prayer, um, we've got these these little black lock boxes kind of around the building. There's also one upstairs. That's where I'm going to ask you as we sing the song uh, that follows the prayer to go ahead and place your gifts. Now, before we get all judgy, some people give quarterly, some people give monthly, a bunch of people give online. Don't start looking around at who gets up and who doesn't. Keep your eyes down. Just sing. Okay? This is just... This is the best way to do it, okay? Um, but if, if you're somebody who gives weekly and you give in paper and you give today, then make sure that you do that as we sing this next song um, after I pray, okay? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for this time to be here uh, together, even though there are a lot of hurdles for that to happen uh, and a lot of logistics that had to be changed. And we just pray that you would continue to watch over us over our Abilene community, over our state and our our nation and our world. And we thank you for the fact that you are at your heart, at your soul, God. You are a giver. And that we know uh, from experience that we cannot outgive you. And that when we give, you bless our lives and our spirits in ways that, that we don't fully understand. And so we pray, God, that you would help each one of us this morning and in the weeks and months to come to be cheerful givers. God, we want to help people experience your joy and your goodness. And we know that that calls for resources from us. And so we pray that you'd help give us the courage to be generous no matter what. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.